Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Love you, Jesus. We just thank you for your faithfulness. Your ways are better. You are good. As we yield our life to you, Lord, we find true freedom. We bless you, Jesus. We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning. As Diane said, let your anointing rest on every word, on every life that it would break yokes, it would break false identities, misplaced images. It would uproot things, Lord. We, we don't want just branches cut off today, Lord. We want deep things to be uprooted. And you're, really, you're a really good pruner, Lord. So may our hearts just be found fertile and, and humble and open to your leadership this morning. Would you come and tend to the gardens of our hearts that we would look more like you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, ushers. Thank you, worship team. Amen. Praise the Lord. Wow. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Little, little humid, not as bad as the last few days, but we're, we're managing. <laughs> um, we've come off in a, an amazing month of, of Sabbathing and, and rest. Excited uh, that we're jumping back into things. We've had an amazing week of evangelism. It was awesome. Um, again, Wednesday, we'll be out again during the day and at night. For those of you who want to be a part of it, prayer room. Uh, we had an awesome love day. Right? Wasn't love day awesome last Sunday? And uh, a special thank you to everyone that served and, and was a part of it. It's been a few weeks since been up here personally and really excited to, to share something. Um, that's, I just feel it's, it's, it's something God's speaking in my life. And from talking with others, uh, it sounds like they sh- they're sharing a similar uh, sentiment. And so I just trust this is God's uh, voice for us this morning, um, even in all my frailty, that it's, it, it's capturing the essence of what I feel God's putting his finger on. Um, right now, over these last few weeks, and so we're just going to jump into it. If you would turn with me to Hebrews 13, Hebrews chapter 13, and I'll, I'll share a little bit from this text. Ultimately, I want to take us into 1 Samuel 15 and look at uh, an account in Saul's life, but what's on my heart is simply it's I I feel the Lord in my own life but I I do feel like it's extending out to our entire body of uh, just a deeper longing in my heart to want to please God with my entire life I don't know how else to put into words I just want I I realize that there's areas in my life that I that I withhold from the Lord and and see that's the easy thing we all know that but why (laughs) and that's hopefully the journey we'll go on today is is really addressing what, why, what are the whys, why are the areas of our life that we're so quick to just act as if it's not there, um, why can we do that, and, and fall into really a form of deception, and, uh, and I just, I feel the Lord's goodness, he wants to bring us into deeper consecration, and, and really deeper pursuit of him, I want to give him more of my life, and I'm so grateful for his grace that at, at times just awakens me to that. And I, I don't know, I've shared with others, and I feel others are sharing the same thing, wanted to give more to the Lord. So I wanted to share something in Hebrews 13 just to kind of speak in general of a life of obedience. And then I wanted to take us into 1 Samuel to really start to drill deeper and not just come to the conclusion. I know we all know we're, we're called to obey the Lord, but why do we not? And, and just kind of touch on that. So Hebrews 13, verse 20, this really gives language to... What's been in my heart, it was actually something highlighted in the Friday morning prayer set. Hebrews 13, verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, so who raised Jesus from the, from, from the, from the grave, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, 
equip you with everything good that you may do as well. So just, just stop for a moment. It's telling us that the God who raised Christ from the dead and uh, he's formed an eternal covenant by this blood, that that same God is committed now to working in us by the Spirit, uh, a work that allows us to now do his will. Meaning there is, it's, it, there's nothing impossible for God. He raised his son and therefore he is, there's nothing impossible in your life that you can't overcome by the blood and by the spirit that Christ has given us. And so the same God who raised Jesus from, from the dead, it says in verse 21, is now equipping you with everything. Everything he's equipping us. That you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> I think this just really puts language to what I feel in, again, what I just sense is, is burden on my own life. And I just want to extend it out. And I, I do believe it's, it's something God's putting for our body. That I, I want more than ever, I want my whole life to be pleasing to the Lord. I want my whole life to be pleasing to Him. And I, I know, I, on one sense, there's a pleasure that our lives bring to the Lord because we are in Christ, okay? Because the Father is eternally pleased with the Son. When you are in the Son, that pleasure is over your life because that perfection is over your life. It's true. That's why when Jesus was baptized, came up out of the waters, it says, this is my Son whom I am well pleased in. And as we've expressed many times before, that pleasure that the Father was giving towards the Son was prior to ministry, which means that pleasure was not contingent on his ministry. It was just a pleasure that he had over his Son. So when you're in Christ, there is a pleasure over your life just because you're in the perfect son. That's true. But at the same time, Hebrews 11 says that it is impossible to please God without faith. And the, the context of Hebrews 11 is the Hebrews Hall of Faith, which is not just conversion faith. It's a lifestyle of faith. It's a life that's continuously responding to the revelation, the word of the Lord. Right? Abraham, it pleased God that Abraham, when he heard, didn't just say, I hear you, I believe you're speaking, I believe you have a land, but then went right back to what he was doing. But often, how often do we reduce faith now to just a cognitive response? Here's the gospel, here's the five points. Do you believe it? I believe it. Well, then you have faith. Actually, biblically, faith is response to revelation. To be honest, and we talk about this a lot, the demons, it says, believe in Jesus and shudder at his name. Which means they don't just believe that he exists, they believe he's the one. In fact, when you see their interactions with him, they say, what have you come to do with us, the Holy One, the Son of God? You give the core tenets of the Christian faith before a demon, he would say, I believe that, I believe that, I, I believe he's the one, I believe he's the Messiah. Here's the difference. They do not follow. They do not obey. If we claim to have faith in the Lord, but it's merely a cognitive agreement with no lifestyle, we can find ourselves in a pretty dangerous camp. <laughs> so we bring pleasure to God because we're in the Lord, but we bring pleasure to God through a lifestyle of yielding our will to him. Just look at the Gospels. When people exercise faith, Jesus was moved by it. He said, I haven't seen faith like this. It touched his heart. And, and all I know is that I, I, want, I want that. I want to I bless him. I want every part of my life to touch him. And what's amazing is what this means is, guys, is that you and I have been created with the capacity, not in our own strength, but by grace and his spirit, to live a life that pleases him. Isn't that amazing? You and I can move the heart of the eternal creator. I need, I feel God's just reminding simple truths of wanting to deliver me from living for the pleasures of man. Say, God, I want to live for your pleasure. I want to live, I want to live with this reality, God, of, of your eye. Colossians 1.10 talks about how when we know the will of God, that, that ultimately we, we can live a life that is fully pleasing unto the Lord. That's incredible. We can live a life fully pleasing every aspect. Romans 12.1 says that our minds can, when they're renewed, it so transforms our life that we actually prove the will of God, that good and holy and acceptable will. Prove actually means demonstrate. Do you know that you and I as a Christian are meant to be walking demonstrations of God's will in every area? How should a Christian treat their family? How should a Christian operate in the marketplace? Well, just look at a Christian. They're constantly demonstrating the will of God. We are literally meant to be walking manifestations of his will. Yes? And if you feel overwhelmed by that, 
just be encouraged by the text that he's the one working in us. Now, that doesn't, though, mean that we just stand there and God's just doing everything. But what it does mean is he's providing everything. But there is a cooperation with grace. There's a yes that we're giving to his power and what he's supplying to us. And when your yes with his grace comes together, a life is transformed. I want you to know, if you're new in the faith, it's real. This walk with Jesus is real. People really change. (laughs) People really become different. People really love the Lord. People really serve him, not just in church, but their entire lives. It's not holy perfection, but it's holy intention. Even in all of our mess-ups, we're constantly saying, God, I I want you, Lord. I want you. Like, my heart breaks that this thing is not in alignment with you. It's real. And he equips us. And the covenant he's made with us is eternal, which means he'll never stop working in us. He'll never stop equipping you. (laughs) He'll never stop fighting for you. Areas where we have waved the white flag, I've done it before, God is still fighting for you in those places, (laughs) working in it. So the call for all of us is that we would live a life where we do the will of God and we're fully pleasing unto him. Not just because we're in him, yes, positionally, but practicing it, living it out. But here's what I think. I feel like that life that we just read in Hebrews 13 is under great attack right now. Not just from with outside the church. I really feel like it's under attack from within the church. And there's a lot of places we can go in this, but I, particularly I feel like the life that we just expressed, that po- the soul pines to please God, and every decision they see in their life is a platform to show their love for God. A life that lives like that is now being called legalistic. You're just a holy roller. You're just in works, brother. You're living a life of works now. Listen, <laughs> That is not a life of works. That is not legalistic. That is love. That's, that's what love looks like. Here, legalism, legalism, legalism and obedience can be very hard to distinguish from the outside because both have right action. The difference is, is the motive. So I would define it this way. Legalism is right action with wrong motive. Obedience is right action with right motive. So the challenge is, is that you can see two people performing the same task and really not be able to know what motive is flowing. So legalism's real, but I would explain it this way. Imagine Bible reading, something simple. The one who's in a legalistic spirit is not convinced that they have received the love of God in Christ. Therefore, they read the Bible to try to earn God's love. The problem with that is if you don't do it enough, then you don't feel like God loves you. Or if you do it as much as you should or even go beyond that, guess what? Now you're very prideful thinking that God loves me more than you. There's a religious spirit with that, right? But the one who's obedient is also wants to read the word, but it's not to earn God's love. It's from God's love. It's to God's love. It's saying this one who came a, a man and shed his blood for me on the cross, I want to know him. It's, so I pursue the word not because I'm trying to earn, but I love him. I want to know him. I want to please him, the one who gave everything for me. That's not legalistic. That's not works, brother. That is love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. They're not contradictory. They go together. In fact, the greatest form of obedience comes from the heart of love. It's true. Scriptures do show you can obey out of fear, like ungodly fear, fear of just punishment. You can obey out of duty. And at the end of the day, obedience is good. (laughs) But if you want an obedience that transforms you, it must be a heart from love. That's, the, that's where you start getting transformed when you're not just obeying out of fear of losing something or out of duty, but because you love him. And grace is around really touching your heart. So these two go hand, hand in hand. Jesus said in Revelation 2, he called the church of Ephesus who had done many good things but had lost sight of their first love. If you remember, what's his counsel? It's amazing. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. Hold on, they fell out of first love. Jesus, you're giving contradictory advice. Works and love, those don't go hand in hand, but they do. When you love someone, pursuit is natural to love. If I love someone, if I love my wife, pursuit will take place. I will want to spend time. I will want to do the things that please her. If I don't, you'll see it in my works, right? So works and love go hand in hand. Works are beautiful. I fear that Jesus' counsel would actually be rebuked (laughs) in some respects today, saying this is legalistic. This is, again, this is, we almost demonize works today, Um, which we can't get into all of that. But I I think there's a healthy origin in some respects in that I do believe it comes from a place of wanting to preserve the the, uh, uniqueness of Christ's work, which is unique. His work is the work. But 
we've so separated faith and works that we run what uh, James says is, is a real place of deception where our faith without works is dead. It's so intertwined. So we're not saved by these works, but it's so connected that if I really believe in the Lord, it's going to, his work is producing a work in me. Amen? So all that to say, I'm just burdened with wanting to live a life that pleases God and having him touch everything. And I want to, uh, hmm. do you know that life is under attack as well? We call it burdensome. I want you to know that living a life of obeying the Lord is not burdensome. It's not. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus actually said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And then he gives a picture of what happens after that. He gives a picture of a house. He says, those that, that hear my voice but do not practice what I say is like a house built on sand, so that when storms come, their life unravels. But the one who hears my voice and practices what I say, he's like a house built on the rock. The rock in that case is actually, it's not just like, just Jesus, it's, it's actually obedience to his word. That's the rock. So we can say, I know Jesus, but the rock, the firm foundation is when our life is built on yielding to his voice and his ways. Both have storms touch their life, but the one who stands is the one who's in obedience. So actually, it's protection and love for us. His lordship, lordship is connected to obedience. If we claim he's Lord, it will be expressed through how much we yield our lives to him. And again, this is good news. For David said, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Or put it this way, when the shepherd is my Lord, I find myself not lacking. So if lordship's connected to obedience, and when we make him Lord, we find ourselves not lacking, I would, I would propose that oftentimes the areas where we feel empty and still lacking is because we actually haven't submitted that area of our life to him. But when we yield to his voice and his instructions, we find that we do not want anymore. Everything is, this is protection, this is love, his lordship is good, it's not burdensome. Do you know what's burdensome? Living a life prior to Christ, which the scriptures say is completely a waste. Do you know what's burdensome is waking up every day, giving your best in an area, even excelling, and finding out it was all unto nothing. For Peter says, prior to Christ, prior to us coming in Christ, he says, our lives were futile, meaning empty, a waste, meaningless. But now you have been redeemed not by blood, uh, gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus, which means... It's not burden to live a life that can please God. We have the privilege who once lived a life of meaninglessness, wandering around trying to make something happen. It was all to nothing. Now we can know every decision, every action, every word can actually bring pleasure to God and last for eternity. It moves his heart. It's a joy that we get to have this. Amen? All right, let's, let's go to First uh, Samuel. Here's honestly, not that we're spending that long of a time, but... Here's where we start to get into, uh, I think, just probe this deeper. So 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel 15. Now, it may feel like we're going to hit some things in it. This is a story, it's just, you know, the phrase, the title of today is obedience is better than sacrifice. And I want us to go on a little journey as to what exactly is meant by that. So we're, we've hit kind of just this life obedience in general, but there's something really so powerful in this text that I want us to grasp, and um, I think it'll be li really life-giving. So that's where we're going along the way. We're going to hit some different things. Just bear with me. I promise it'll come full, full circle. But if you, if you haven't read this story... This is an account in the life of Saul. Saul was the first king over the united Israel. And what you have here is God has actually commissioned Saul to essentially completely smite the Amalekites, all their people and all their livestock. It is beyond our scope to press into that because that's challenging in itself. Um, and actually studying this week, it's really profound to see God's wisdom and goodness coming forth in a commission like that that I never saw before. We're not going there, but I want you to know it's there. And if you're struggling with how could God commission someone to do this, this is actually a, an amazing act of justice that's taking place here. But it goes deeper than that. But the Amalekites were a brutal, fierce, corrupt people, uh, just 
had destroyed many lives. In fact, they even opposed the Israelites as they were journeying through the, the wilderness. And now God is, there's an act of divine justice coming. It's, it's still a tough pill to swallow, but this is actually an expression of goodness. And, and Saul's been called to do this. The issue is that when Saul's called to do this, he actually doesn't obey. He preserves the king of the Amalekites, Agag, and he preserves the best of the livestock. And his reasoning is, is that he's going to offer up an extravagant sacrifice to the Lord with those livestock. And the Lord's going to tell him, I wanted obedience, not sacrifice. <laughs> this is a really powerful story. and We're going to hit some deep layers of how Saul justified his disobedience and fell into self-deception. And how this can happen with us as well. Okay? So here's what happens is uh, Saul is approached by Samuel. Samuel comes to him uh, because the Lord told Samuel that he didn't obey. And so uh, Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul meets him right away. You know a guilty conscience when he wasn't even asked, and he just said, hey, I, I, I did what the Lord said before he even provoked. What's interesting is the Hebrew word. We translated he, that he says, I obeyed. The Hebrew word actually is better translated, I heard what the Lord said. Because the Hebrew understanding of hearing is not merely just to listen. It's to heed. It's very important. So when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking, he's not simply saying, just listen to my message. He's saying, he who heeds my message. So the irony of this story is that Saul comes out to Samuel and says, I heard what the Lord said, meaning I heeded. And then Samuel says, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle? Meaning he did not wipe out all that the Lord had told him. And so here, picking up in verse 17, here's what Samuel says. We'll read to like verse 23 or 24, and then we'll unpack this. It says, And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. This is very important. He's convinced right now that he has done what the Lord has asked him. This is very, very important. And then he says this, verse 21, But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And in verse 22, Samuel says to him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He's basically saying, what does God delight in more? Sacrifices and offerings or obedience to his voice? He says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. He's actually saying Saul was in rebellion here. And presumption or arrogance is as iniquity and idolatry. So he's being con confronted of being an idolatry here. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, listen to this sobering statement. He has also rejected you from being king. Okay. <laughs> there is no way around this story that it is, uh, the more that I read this story and come back to it as I progress in the, in the Lord, the more sobering the story is, the more honestly emotional this story is to me. Uh, I've, sharing things with my wife that I just see God highlighting stuff in my own heart and just, it's just emotional. It's just, I, I, I just, this story, this is a heartbreaking story because what we're reading about is the tragic fall of Saul. Saul's life will eventually end, in essence, here's how you categorize it, a demonized maniac who spent his whole life trying to kill David. But the tragedy of this story that I really think, as sad as that is, is that that's not how Saul started. This is not how Saul started. Saul was the one. He was anointed. He had courage. He had boldness. He was God's man. He was leading in ministry. He had all of these things going. Saul was the man. He didn't start the way that he ended. And if we're going to take the word and the things that we see that are more positive and say these are examples for us today, meaning these things are within our reach and these things could be things that we can walk in, which is true, then we must also admit that stories like this are also within reach for our life. It's true. That as positive, as much as we can glean from positive examples and say this could be me, and it's true, so is this. That's really important, not to put fear, 
but to have our hearts searched, that we can actually start. How does someone who start on fire for God, sold out for the Lord, find themselves completely foreign with the ways of God, wanting nothing to do with them anymore? It can happen. The question is why? And that's a complex question, but I will say this, that there is a really clear and important answer given in the life of Saul that really connects to where we're going, and that's this. I believe what you see happening in the life of Saul, how does someone get there? Self-deception. Self-deception. They lose sight of reality. They lose sight of where they're really at. They convince themselves they're really somewhere else that they're not, and the longer you stay in that, it opens the door to great tragedy. Self-deception, guys, is not the worst thing that can happen, but I will say this. It will open the door to the worst things that can happen to you. When, we, when that happens, when we lose touch with reality and are convinced we are here with God, meanwhile, there are other things going on in our life that is so out of alignment, that is a dangerous place. And if not brought before the Lord, the, the story of Saul's life is that it can lead us to utter brokenness and chaos in our life. And the call is that we don't, we don't have to go down that route. <laughs> Does that make sense? So this is what's happening in the life that I've seen life. What's the cause? How do we see that? It's in that verses like 18 to 21 where Saul, Samuel comes to him and says, you didn't obey the voice of God. And what does he say? I did obey. I did go on the mission. I did do what you said. He was convinced, deceived, thinking that he did something he wasn't. And we're going to look at how he justified his deception. Was through sacrifice rather than obedience. It's really important for us as Christians of how we can actually disguise not depending on the voice of God. <laughs> so just bear with me. But I want to just probe this issue of self-deception because I was really tempted to almost go in this route completely because I think it's such an important topic. It's over and over in Scripture. It's out throughout church history. It's throughout history in itself. And, and I think it, it really will bring us into this whole idea of obedience is better than sacrifice. So just, just journey with me for a moment. Um, self-deception, the human heart has almost an infinite or unlimited capacity to deny things that are painful. Painful, you will find that there are certain things in your life that are more painful than others. The, the question is why, and we're going to look at this and how it came up in Saul. The question is, the reason why is because certain things have actually become, as, as was accused here of Saul, to an idolatrous form in our heart. Certain things, our identity, image, we have old wounds that are attached to certain things that we're doing in our life that are actually out of alignment with God. But the reason why we can't face them is because they're too painful without the gospel. And so what you will find is that the human heart has an enormous capacity to justify wrongs in its life rather than facing that which it finds too painful to face. So we will actually deny it, pretending it's not even there and going on living as if everything is okay. Self-deception is almost this mechanism within that allows me or keeps me from admitting something is actually wrong. Why? Because I cannot face that it's wrong because my identity, my image, or it's t it tugs on a wound that is so deep, I can't face to bear it. So even though God's putting his finger on something, I find a way to just, the heart is so, it's almost incredibleness. It can justify why it doesn't have to em embrace that. And, and Saul will find a way specifically to do that in the context of religion that we'll look at. But th this is, it's almost as if this, self-deception is like this. We know, but we also don't know, only because we don't want to know. Just track me. We actually, self-deception is when we fall in this place of we know something, but at the same time we don't know it. But the only reason why we actually don't know it is because we don't want to know it. <laughs> so, let me give you an example, like, and stay with it because the gospel is how you get set free from this. This is how you're going to get set free. Because when you understand his love and acceptance, you understand what he's done, it allows you to face anything, no matter how painful it may be. Because your identity is not wrapped up in that thing, but in the Lord. I just feel like I need to share that now before I lose someone who goes. So here's, here's a few examples. Um, and these are just... Uh, some things, and then I'll look at with the Lord. But just to, again, understand self-deception. I want you to imagine this. This is actually a true story. I listened to a pastor speak that I'm really fond of. Uh, I don't know if Tim Keller, he recently passed away. Um, but he's always provoked me. Uh, he's in a different, just lane, but it doesn't matter. If someone provokes me to love the Lord, and, and he, the way he, he calls me to cherish the gospel, I love it. And he was actually sharing a true story of how he was reflecting on his time with his wife and the vacations that they would go on. 
and they would typically drive on their vacations to spend more time. They just like that. And he was, he was talking about how while they're on their vacations, oftentimes there would be some conversation centered around the wife saying, hey, honey, uh, so the car doesn't sound right. <laughs> I think we should check it. And, uh, and he laughed because every time that was brought up, some of the men are like, I know that conversation. <laughs> he, uh, he got very defensive. And he would say, you're just always negative. You don't even know anything about cars. The cars always sound like this. And just kind of turn the music up and keep driving, right? And the, 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 the thing is that deep down, he, he actually knew something was probably wrong with the car. Uh, and actually, finally, one time, the car literally did break down. And they needed to get it serviced. But here's the thing. The wife one day said, honey, why do you always get so angry when I bring up the car like that? You don't get like that with anything else. Why is that, in essence, why is that so painful? And he says, that's a really good question. <laughs> and so he came away with the Lord for a little bit. And the Lord was showing him that when he grew up in the town, a very rural town, even as he was a young adult and, and he was a grown man now, he said it was one of those towns where no matter what the job no matter what occupation a man held, it was like they all were mechanics as well. <laughs> it was the type of town that no matter what was wrong with the car, any man could come up and just smell it <laughs> and just say, I know exactly what's going on here. And if it needed a spare part, they always had like three of them in their car. And he said, that wasn't me. I didn't have that skill. I, I, that's not the way I was grown, but that's how I grew up. And it was always a place of insecurity. And so he said when he's driving with his wife and his wife is saying, honey, something's wrong with the car, what he was really hearing is, you're not man enough to fix it. It was too painful to actually address that thing. And so rather than addressing it, turns the music up. He knows, but he doesn't know because he doesn't want to know. There's a, there's a, I'll illustrate another way this way. I want you to imagine a, uh, does that make sense to you? Because the Lord's going to put things that the same thing happens. Uh, I want you to imagine a, a father, um, which I can actually identify with this a lot. It's probably why I had the illustration. <laughs> Not that my son did anything in here that I'm about to say, but imagine that you have a father with a, with a son who's extremely athletic, and every sport that he plays, he excels in. He's always the best. And he's always the number one, head and shoulders above. But also imagine that wherever he goes, every school he goes to, he has to keep bouncing to a new school because what happens is every time his son goes into a school, the father gets a phone call to come to the office, and he sits down with the teacher or the, the coach and the principal and says, your son is being accused of stealing in the locker room. All the other athletes know this. And every, every time he takes him out of school and brings him into another one, because every time he gets addressed, the father responds in anger and rage, saying, that's not true. My son would never steal. In fact, your sons are just jealous. See, this is interesting, is that that may be true, but it doesn't also remove the reality that his son may also have an issue. One of the ways we deceive ourselves is with misdirection. Highlighting something that may be true to, to get off of what actually may be true of ourselves. And the irony of this is that even though he goes from school to school defending his son, saying adamantly, my son would never do this. Meanwhile, at home, he locks up all of his valuables. He knows, but he doesn't know because he doesn't want to know. Why? Because in that sense, his entire honor is built on his son being the best athlete. And if that thing gets touched, who am I now? His identity's image is wrapped up, and I can't face that because I've built an idol over who my son is. Do you see that? As you progress, this gets more and more serious. I'll give you one last story, and this is now on a, a more serious level, and then we'll see with the Lord. True story, World War II, which I'm a fan of studying the, that, that when the Americans were breaking in and gaining ground, I don't know if it was, I think it may have been the first concentration camp, not one of the first, that they liberated um, in Germany. I think it was called Ordorf. Ordorf. Um, anyways, when they came in, the American soldiers came in, uh, Eisenhower, and then they asked General Patton to come. They could not believe the atrocities that were being committed there. And so if you know anything about General Patton, if you've ever heard of him, he was considered like a blood and guts general, meaning nothing moved him. He was stoic. He was cold. But it was said of him that when he went into that concentration camp and when he first witnessed what he saw, he immediately vomited. He couldn't, it, it even broke him. And what he did was, is him and Eisenhower, they went into the, 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 the town where the German civilians were living. It was right in their backyard. And, he, and they started pressing him, saying, did you guys know of the atrocities committed here? And they said, no, we had no idea. And he said, how can that be? The German soldiers would get drunk. They'd go into town. They'd break. How can you not know? And they adamantly died. We had no idea. And he said, whether you know it or not, here's what you're going to do. The next morning, everyone's going to have a shovel. You're going to dig the graves of those that are dead, and you're going to personally bury them. And that's what they had the, the German civilians do. Well, that night, 
When all the civilians came back, the mayor of the town and his wife found that they hung themselves. True story. And they left a note there, and the note said this, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. In other words, it was too painful to acknowledge that this was happening right in our own backyard. See, self-deception is not the worst thing that can happen to you, but it will open the doors to the worst things happening. If not kept with, it allows us, because it's too painful to address, that you can have the worst atrocities arguably ever committed right in your backyard and not address it because it was too much to bear. We didn't know, but we knew. We just didn't want to know what was going on. And so the reality is, guys, is God puts his finger on things in our life and begins to address them, and the same thing happens. He touches areas where we have misplaced identity. We, we built an image on something. It touches a wound that runs so deep that it's easier to just, the human heart is prone to justify and act as if it's not there because it can't bear to watch it. God puts his finger on an issue of money. <laughs> and, and we convince ourselves that I'm just being a really good provider. Meanwhile, we're in totally consumed by money to the point that we've neglected our family. Well, what you may find out is that for one individual, the reason why he does that is because money is a sense of security. And the way that he feels secure is when there's a lot of money in his bank account. For someone else, money brings them into certain social circles they couldn't get without it. What they're really looking for is acceptance. For another person, they feel so insignificant, and money gives them power and control, and they feel like they were worth something. But the point is that they'll never be able to really address that issue unless they understand, like, what's driving it. And when, when you see the gospel, when you see what the Lord has done, it allows you to face even the most painful things because you recognize he's your security, you're approved and accepted in him, and he actually has given you power and authority as a king and a priest, right? Yeah. So I know I hit that, but I wanted you to grasp this place of self-deception. And here you have Saul who's operating in it. And I want you to specifically look at verse 22 again. Here's where, honestly, this is like the heart of this story for us this morning. The question is, it's one thing to know that we will deny that which is so painful. And we have to understand why is this painful, uh, why is it more painful than something else? But, the, but how do we justify this? And I want you to see, there are many ways we can justify. We can blame shift, we can misdirect, as I've shared. But here's what Saul did. Saul offered up a great sacrifice rather than obeying the voice of the Lord. In other words, Saul was hiding behind religion. Saul hid behind sacrifices as a means to convince and justify himself why he wasn't actually obeying the voice of the Lord in another area of his life. You with me? <laughs> really, really important. Just journey with me. Sacrifice is biblical and beautiful. Sacrifice, though, is usually initiated by us and it's something that is external to our own will. Now, it's fueled in love and adoration. It's biblical and beautiful to give things to God. Here's the difference, is that obedience is a, not just an offering of, of a thing, it's an offering of one's will. And obedience is not initiated by self. It's actually first initiated by God, and we're responding to something that God's initiating. Here, this is why it's so important. Don't miss it. It's because sacrifice sacrifice technically you can live a life independent of the lordship of christ in a life of sacrifice mean but you can't do that with obedience because obedience requires dependent trust on his voice and on his will so what happens is it's possible and there's potential what we see in saul's life that we can actually deny god's voice and the way that we do it is that we're offering up all of these sacrifices unto god to to justify that Saul was, in essence, trying to still remain in control of his life. That's the issue. If you just live just a sacrificial life and not an obedient life, you're still in control. It's like Saul is saying, I won't give you my whole will and surrender everything, but I'll give you this. I'll give you this little part. And in doing so, what he's really hoping to do is keep God at bay, to appease him. I'll give you this much. I'll give you two hours every Sunday. I'll give you 10% of my check. I'll give you, I'll even travel to one, one week every year to a remote place of the world and, and get dedicated to missions. But I will not give you my will. I will not yield my entire self to you. And if not careful, many times our sacrifices are actually attempts to remain independent of the Lordship of Christ. 
He's speaking in one area of her life, but what he's touching and hitting is so deep. It's hitting something that our identity or something so wrapped up. Don't be in that relationship anymore. Why? I can't let it go because there's something in it that I'm looking for. So I justify by saying, but I never miss a Sunday service. In fact, I've increased Bible study. I've given more sacrifice unto the Lord in hopes to justify it. But here's the thing. Here, here's, the sad part is this, is that the Lord, Saul was offering up sheep to the Lord. But here, here's what God wanted. God wanted Saul. Saul was giving sheep, but God wanted Saul. He's like, I don't just want your two hours every Sunday. I can't tell you. Listen, I, 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 this is really touching areas of my life. It really is. And the Lord is like, Andrew, I, I love, I've called you to preach. I don't just want your sermons, though. If you're not going to do the things I've asked you to do with your own spouse, with your kids, I don't want your sermons. I can't tell you how often, though, I've been in self-deception, not doing and not leading the way I should in my house, and I'm convinced, but I'm preaching sermons. I'm studying more for my sermons. I'm giving more sacrifice unto the Lord. If not careful, guys, everything, Bible study, worship, evangelism, fasting, all of these beautiful things can actually be attempts to escape daily dependence on the voice of God. God speaking, putting his finger there's all the stuff. We're posting things we shouldn't. We're speaking about things we shouldn't. We're looking at things that we shouldn't. But meanwhile, we're giving all this stuff to the Lord, and therefore we've justified that we don't have to do that. Does that make sense? This is how Paul fell into, uh, Saul fell into deception. Great self-deception with religion. By hiding behind sacrifices. And uh, there's no amount of sacrifice or service that will ever make up for the small step of obedience to his voice. He wants us, guys. He, the, sacrifice, the sacrificial life without the obedient life, it becomes just religion. We're just giving him the outer things of our life. And this is good news. He wants something more than form. I honestly believe, if we're honest on all levels, this has touched our life. God's put his finger on something, saying, I don't want this. It's not good for you, my son, my daughter, this, this. And what he was touching Again, it was so important to us because it really became a form of idolatry. We exalted it to look to something only the Lord gives that we couldn't face it. Instead, our hearts escaped it by saying, but look, I never miss service. I I'm, I'm leading in ministry. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And meanwhile, we're in total self-deception, completely blind. God wants to rescue us from it. Like, how does someone be leading in this and have all this stuff going on in their life. It's self-deception. Somehow their heart has justified that this was okay. And I believe God wants to bring us at it, to bring us in the wholeness and freedom and liberty. Amen? Like Saul's example here is that we can live an extravagant life of sacrifice and be in rebellion. That's how he calls Saul's life. He says, this is rebellion. <laughs> you, it's extravagant. I'm giving God all of these things. And he says, no, I want your heart. I want you I don't want to, uh, the Lord doesn't, we're not meant to control our lives. God doesn't want us in control of our lives. It's actually, we don't want that either. Deep down, we don't want that. The Lord wants to be in control of that. I, I remember, um, just to give you an example of this in my own life, I remember years ago, uh, sports is a big part of my life, but I have to be careful because it can quickly um, take an unhealthy place in my heart. And it's, I've, I really feel like I've grown in, in come a long way in that but when I was first saved that was that was a big issue and I remember I got into because my brothers were in a league and they invited me into fantasy football <laughs> and uh and so at first to be honest my 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 intentions I do believe were, were good or maybe I was just deceiving myself but I said you know my brothers and I were kind of living different lives I was this is my life now and and so our lives didn't really touch a lot and that was an area where we were coming together and having fun and so I don't, know, I don't know what was in that, if that was further deception. I, I felt like it was genuine. But quickly, that just, that, the whole um, uh, fantasy football just took over. It was bizarre, like just destroying my sleep pattern. I mean, I was waking up because there were certain notifications given at like 2 in the morning. I didn't even need an alarm. I just woke up. Like, could look at, it was just all over. But here's the thing is that I was leading in ministry, and I was so blind to the state of my heart. I was so blind, leading man, I had no idea, and I was convinced, but I'm leading ministry, I'm doing all these things, I'm, I'm good. Meanwhile, my heart was, had, had exalted something so above the Lord, and what happened was is I had felt for years, way before ever playing this, that I, I wanted to go away for a week, 
and just be with the Lord and fast. And for me at that time, that was so radical. And, uh, and so I asked my wife, and then I asked my leaders, and I, and I went to Vermont where our in-laws still have a house, and I just locked myself in a house with water, and I just fasted and pursued God, and I was, like, getting ready. I had all these pictures of the glory encounters and all the things, which they were amazing things. But day two, when, like, hunger is at its worst, and I'm like, oh, God, I need you, and as I'm worshiping God, I just hear him say, stop playing fantasy football. <laughs> and and um, I kid you not, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like anything, anything but that. And I'm not kidding. That entire, that entire week, I wrestled so, it was so hard to enter in the worship because I knew he wanted to speak to me on that. I did everything I could to convince myself that what I was doing was a way to reach out and minister to my brothers, that God would never speak this. I was writing lists of all the devotion I was going to give to the Lord when I came back. N not kidding. I didn't see what I was trying to do, but I said, I'm going to fast every lunch. I'm like, this is going to be catalyst for something new. Meanwhile, I just wasn't talking about this issue. I was making packs with, I don't know who I'm making packs with, because it certainly wasn't God. And, and I'm convinced this is, this is it. And finally, the Lord just spoke to me in, in this place and said, Andrew, I don't want your extra sacrifice. I want you. I want you. And, and that was, honestly, it was just a journey. It wasn't easy, but I, in the end, after I was kicking and screaming, I said, Lord, I this, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> he, he, this is what he wants. And the point is the Lord wants you, not just your sacrifice. He wants the entirety of our lives. He wants our obedience. Amen? So let me just finish here with uh, the solution to this. Coming out of self-deception. Coming out of religion. Um, two things I want to give you, and then we'll, we'll close and we'll get ready to take communion together. Number one, all right, we... <laughs> The second one's most important, I think, but this first one's important. We need community. Just think about it. If we're self-deceived, the issue is self. <laughs> we need someone outside of self to speak into our life. Community does not guarantee it, but it certainly will make it a lot harder. We still have a choice to deny, but when we have people in our life who can come and say, hey, this, this is just off, this isn't right, or hey, the Lord's calling you into this, and I feel like you're supposed to do that, it makes it a lot harder. We need community. Even, even like my studying of the word, here's what I found. If I have extended periods of isolation, even in studying the word, I can get into some really weird, crazy stuff. Community helps filter the things that God's speaking where I can be like, okay, I, there's something good in this, but I was like going really strange, and this is like bringing me back to, to normalcy. Community helps really keep away self-deception. So that's number one is community. But number two, more than anything, we'll finish here, is the gospel. And I've kind of hit on this, but remember, there, the reason why we can't look at certain things is because they're too painful. As it said here in Saul's life, actually his arrogance was a form of idolatry, it said in verse 23. So just hear this, hear this real quick. Verse, 15, um, verse 17, here's the gospel. I believe Samuel presented the gospel to Saul just with Old Testament language. <laughs> Samuel comes to him and says this in verse 17. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Now just stop. Why was Saul keeping these things from God and, and holding on to them? Well, what you'll find if you read all the surrounding text, the first thing he did after this victory is he made a monument to himself for his own honor. And then when he finally repents, he says, you know what? I did know. I, I, I knew, but I didn't know because I didn't want to know. <laughs> he did actually know. And he said, the reason why is because I feared man and obeyed their voice. Why? I believe it's because what Samuel said here. When, you, when the Lord found you, you were small in your own eyes. There's a place for humility. I believe that Saul actually really struggled, if you look at his scriptures, with like feeling uh, like worthless. He didn't believe he, he was really the one who the Lord called him. He was still fighting for honor and making himself great through his own strength. And what Samuel is saying is, why are you trying to make yourself great? Don't you know the Lord has set you up as king and made you great? He's saying, Saul, in New Covenant language, you've been sovereignly elected by grace to lead. But you're rejecting the grace of God by trying to make yourself great in your own eyes. The reason you're disobeying is because you're not resting in what the Lord has done for you. You weren't the wisest. You weren't the strongest. I think they say he was pretty handsome. But what he's saying, Samuel, is that uh, you didn't have anything of yourself that was warranting the position that you were given. But grace came into your life and made you something. Why are you not trusting in that? So in the case of the new covenant, this is what Jesus has done. 
He is the only one who is truly great. But for our sake, he made himself small. (laughs) Philippians 2 says he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. What do I mean by small, insignificant? Do you know that Herod, when he saw him in Luke 23, says, this is Jesus? This is the one? Jesus became so insignificant that when an earthly king looked at him, he walked right past him. For our sake, he who was great became small so that we who were small in that sense could be lifted up to be called kings and priests. And the way that we allow, the way that you can embrace the hardest things in your life, the places where it touches all the identity, all the image stuff, all the wounds, is when you know that of the love and acceptance and value and what God has done in Christ for you. Because once that happens, you recognize that you're, that's not who you are. Your fullness is not banked on those things, but in the Lord. This is, this is how you get delivered from every mechanism that's trying to hide the true self, is when you understand what God has done and that he saw your true self, and this is who he's made you. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, there is nothing more liberating than to be so loved that you can finally admit that you are flawed. Bonhoeffer said this, there's nothing more liberating than to, know, than to be so loved that you can finally admit that you are flawed. Why can't I admit my flaws? Because I'm still convinced. I, I struggle still with like perfection. Why do I struggle with admitting flaws? Because my image is still based on my striving for perfection. Meanwhile, I've been given the perfection of Christ. So I can't face issues because if I face that, oh my goodness, who am I? I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I, I don't measure up. But when I know I'm perfect in him, I can face those and actually overcome and grow in holiness. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Amen. Let's, let's, uh, let's, we're, let's bring out communion. I want to come around the table and close here. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.